3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast Summer Series, featuring some of our favourite conversations we've had during the year. The AFL have released their new trans and gender diverse policy for um, trans women um, and gender non-binary people wanting to play in the AFLW. Um, broadly, they've released a lot of, I, I suppose one of the interesting aspects is that they've released a lot of kind of medical quotas that um, these women need to meet before they'll be considered to be able to compete in the AFL. It's something to do with a level of testosterone uh, in their body over a period of years. But also, they haven't defined, they've specified things around height and weight and um, <clears throat> standing vertical leap, you know, those kind of testings they do at the draft and things. They haven't, they've just, they've just blanketly kind of said that uh, trans men are welcome to compete, but there won't be any standards that they have to meet uh, because they can't see any kind of competitive advantage, you know, even though, you know, many scientific studies have shown that women have a far higher pain threshold than men, for example. Uh, so I think it's, I don't know, I just think it's it's an interesting little path to go down when you start to read. Um, you know, I think it, it's good that they've put together a policy, but... Um, you know, it's so kind of, the, it's, it's, it's so medicalized and in the language, you know, and it, it makes, I don't know, it just feels like a lot of kind of hoops to jump through and, a, and, and the, there's a dangerous kind of feeling of, um, you know, who is a, a proper trans person in terms of wanting to compete in the AFL. There, there's a lot about way of the AFLW, which, um, you know, it feels like, you know, you see when a small organisation starts up or, you know, whatever, that you kind of just start doing something and then there is an issue arises, so then you have to work out a policy around this and whatever. And, and for a small organisation, that's a perfectly legitimate way to do things you maybe didn't envisage the thing would get this big or whatever. But for an organisation like the AFL, which is a, you know, multi-billion dollar industry, it's has a lot of people that work for them understand all of these issues, um, you know, campaign around a lot of social issues and things like that. The AFLW as a whole, it, it appears like that. There's really little thought put into a lot of the bigger picture issues. And, uh, you know, there's been quite a few people that have argued that they wanted a distraction from the Essendon drug saga that had happened for a few years. Wow, and that's uh, cynical. And that they had, you know, because for a long time, women and, and lots of people have campaigned for mm. an AFLW league. Mm. And then it kind of just came out of nowhere. Um, and, you know, it, it, it has been a, a great success. But there, there's, still, there's a lot of issues that they don't seem to have a forward planning for, you know. And I think that this is one of those as well. And I don't 
you know, it's certainly not a perfect institution. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think that it sounds like they're reaching a positive outcome in this situation. And I, I think that mostly that they will reach these positive outcomes. It just seems a bit strange to not have forward plan. I mean, the pay issue is another thing. Massive issue. The, the fact that... And the justification for it. The pay issues. One of the things that's really bothered me, you know, that it's just not financially viable. It's not commercially viable to pay uh, these uh, female athletes what is a fair uh, amount, compar- you know, comparative to the men, or even for the amount of work they're doing, the training, whatever. It's nowhere near um, fair at the moment. It's wildly um, imbalanced, and the the argument is, well, it's commercially not viable to pay these women, but. It's not commercially viable to have a team on the Gold Coast. It's not commercially viable to have a team in Western Sydney. They're pouring millions and millions of dollars into those experiments, you know, in the hope that that will return something down the line, which is exactly the same as, as what a women's competition should be. They haven't said, well, because nobody ever goes to watch the Gold Coast play, all of those players will get paid a tenth of what every other AFL player gets paid. You know, it's Well, just they've done the opposite. I mean, and they even talked exactly about right. incle- increasing their salaries so they can hang on to players. Mm, so that kind of hypocrisy is, um, is, is frustrating. But yeah, I agree with you that overall, you know, like I, they open their, um, their gender diversity policy uh, <clears throat> with the guideline that the AFL recognises that Australian rules football is not just a sporting game, but a vehicle for bringing families and communities together. The AFL is committed to the inclusion of gender diverse people in our game, and the intention of our policy is that gender diverse players registered to play football in the competition that accords with their identified gender are supported in doing so in a safe and inclusive environment. The AFL is committed to ensuring that gender diverse players can participate in our game free from harassment and discrimination. So I think all of that is a really good place to start the policy from. Some of the language that just I don't know, like, I, I, sometimes I feel like the, the medicalisation of people's identities is, you know, a strange space to get into. Um, but th- this is the language that I, th- I thought was a bit strange. So, given the, the physical nature of Australian rules football, it is considered that maintenance of testosterone at or below 5 n-mole, nanomole, or I'm not quite sure what the n-mole stands for, but I imagine it's a milliliter or even less, per litre for at least two years is reasonable to ensure that the competitive advantage of higher levels of testosterone have dissipated to an acceptable degree at the time the trans or non-binary person proposes to play in the AFLW competition. This threshold requirement has been the subject of extensive medical consultation by the AFL. If the threshold requirement is met, trans women and non-binary people seeking to nominate for the AFLW draft must produce information including, to the extent available, data regarding their height, weight, bench press, 20-metre sprint, vertical jump, GPS data and 2-kilometre run. And what I find really strange about all of those testings is they are normally the tests, if you do very well on them, they would recommend you to definitely play. Mm. But essentially, I, what I imagine what this means is if you are a trans or non-binary identifying person, if you do very well in these tests, they're going to say, you can't play. Mm. So I think it's, I, I don't know. That's it's, very confusing. Yeah. So just, you should just not do well in the combine sort of thing. Yeah, I guess it's yeah, well, it's kind we, of if similar you're, to... If you're not a trans woman, you're... Um, and you do well in those, you know, another... You're just very big and very tall and very strong. So how does that work? Should they be excluded as well? Or? Well, it sounds like a competitive advantage to me. I mean, Lance Franklin seems to have a competitive advantage. <laughs> I just think this... So is much so that he um, only trained for 20 minutes for the year and still managed to get a spot in the All-Australian team ahead of Tom Hawkins. Anyway, <laughs> and captain. 
It's okay. Yeah, I, mean, I think the latter point has some validity. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I actually think that Hawkins had a more consistent year than Lance, Certainly. but Lance's blinding brilliance at times. He's certainly a better player. No, but I guess, you know, what we're saying um, before the whole show becomes a football show is, you know, I think even with the pay thing, I'm not advocating that um, it's the right thing or, or not. But if, you know, what the issue is now, why not say this is our plan for the next five years, that it will, you know, slowly increase over this time until it gets to X. Or, mm. you know, what's tied to, what the AFL says is tied to this is that the entry is free, um, to the games, so the start of each season, Bump that price. they just keep saying they're like, oh yeah, no, it, there won't be a price again. Just say it will be for the first two years. We're going to have free entry so that we can try to generate people to come and and make this a part of their activities that they do. The third year we'll make it this price. You know, let us know that there's a plan actually happening here rather than it being decided on the run, which. You know, actually, is a criticism a lot of people have of the AFL generally. Actually, that a lot of the rules are kind of made up as they go. Yeah, um, to give you just a comparative uh, example as well, with the the current um, minimum payment for uh, a top level female cricketer in Australia is seventy two thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm pretty sure the best paid players in the AFLW are getting $25,000, uh, you know, which is obviously a hell of a lot less. Um, yeah, and um, <clears throat> yeah, I just think they could do a bit better. And, you know, I guess to further the kind of gendered, um, you know, way in which the sport is reported, uh, so Daisy Pierce um, is having twins and congratulations this was front page news but not the you know and that's great for her Mm. um but i think that when was the last time when are her football achievements on the front page but you know she has a child or she's going to be having a child and and that is the front page news and i think interestingly enough with with jay-z as well that she has uh obviously television and radio um you know, responsibilities, that's part of her job. Mm-hmm. And she's also a midwife. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of, you know, that's four kind of jobs that somebody who's widely regarded as the, um, you know, if not the best, the most uh, famous um, women's footballer has to undergo that many jobs in order to just, um, you know, play the sport. You're listening to 3CR's Breakfast Summer Series. For more details on what you've been hearing, you can visit 3cr.org.au forward slash breakfast. We've got Gideon Haig, who is um, one of Australia's great writers, really, and mm. he writes on a lot of different issues, um, cricket, on workers' issues, and he's written um, a lot of books himself and writes regularly for um, the, the Australian and, and other lots of other publications. And... Uh, he's going to be talking about David Graeber's um, theory around kind of jobs that are... Baloney. Yes. Um, Baloney jobs for our yeah. breakfast audience. Jobs that, well, Graeber describes them as jobs that neither the worker themselves or the rest of society at, live, at large believe contribute 
to society. So mm. I guess he kind of targets white-collar, middle management, people responsible for human resources or efficiency gains or public relations who, when quizzed, can't actually tell you what it is they do, mm. apart from earn a decent income. Uh, and after that, we have alternative news, and we've got some great things to chat about there. Yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Richard Dennis's new quarterly essay, Dead Right, How Neoliberalism Ate Itself, which ties in pretty well with Graeber's theory, actually, about baloney jobs. Uh, and after that, we're going to have a chat, continuing our discussion we've had for a number of weeks now around men's violence. Um, we're going to be chatting um, I guess about what is posed, I guess, is some of the solutions to that is, is, um, criminalization is more prisons, more prisons, more security, more surveillance. So we're going to have a chat around that. Mm. Uh, then we'll go into over the wall was a continued discussion about tenancy issues with Mark O'Brien from the Tenants Union. Um, following that, we have Jill Paris, who's a refugee activist and author who's written two books in collaboration with a former Manus detainee. So it's a great show again, I think. Mm. Um, and okay, well, we might just go into um, a quick little announcement and then we'll be back with Gideon. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. It's Jim Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And we're quite lucky enough to be joined by Gideon Haig now, who, as I said before, is... uh, you know, I guess a legendary Australian uh, writer who's um, written on many, many topics. But um, right now we're we're chatting to um, Gideon about David Graeber's um, this article, which came out. Uh, it's the original came out, I think, around five years ago, but it's been turned into a longer essay. Uh, so thanks a lot for joining us this morning, Gideon. That's right. Um, so I guess to to start with, um, what what um, for people that perhaps um, haven't heard about. Uh, Graeber's article is it's kind of bringing into contention a lot of the, um, like I said, kind of middle management type jobs and um, other kind of things that I guess exist, particularly around, um, you know, corporations and things like that in bigger organisations and I guess the kind of relevancy they might have um, within, uh, you know, a changing kind of um, working landscape. 
Yeah, well, Graeber is um, uh, an interesting and provocative thinker. who's very closely associated with the Occupy Wall Street movement. And around about that time, he, um, he contributed an essay to a magazine called Strike called On the Phenomenon of Bullshit Jobs. Uh, he said he'd developed a, a, a sort of an intuition that, uh, that corporations were filling up with jobs that didn't do <clears throat> very much of anything. Um, he sort of threw in things like people working in human resources, people working in public relations, uh, people working in strategy and, and legal matters. Uh, they were generating uh, lots of activity to, uh, to, to no particular end. Uh, and this was a kind of a um, uh, sort of a white collar equivalent of uh, the, the sort of the, the blue collar um, uh, mindless uh, employment. Um, I, I think he he defines bullshit job as a form of paid employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence, even though as part of the conditions of employment. The employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a wonderfully entertaining thesis. Um, he he distinguishes it interestingly from shit jobs, um, which are you know things like sort of very low level menial employment, like you know, people who clean toilets or dig ditches. Um, the the white collar equivalent is is much more genteel, but um, but in a sense, it's, uh, he sees it as a kind of a um, uh, an antidote or a, or a balm for the attrition that's taken place in uh, white-collar workplaces as a result of neoliberalism and mechanisation. Uh, and it, it sort of goes to keeping um, uh, minds that might otherwise be uh, occupied by um, uh, independent thought, uh, people with it keeps people's noses to a, to a kind of a spurious grindstone. I'm interested in, in what in your review you talked about kind of the, the meaning, meaningless sort of tasks that we have to do within our own jobs and kind of that being more of a problem perhaps in itself in, you know, the endless meetings that could maybe could have been mm, an email yes. themselves or, you know, all of this kind of stuff that means that we, we lose part of that creativity of what we can do or, you know, mm. in, indeed part of our time because... We're forced to kind of be at work for a set period of time, regardless right. of how much work might need to be done in that time. And mm. I think that, yeah, I think that that is a kind of speaks a, a bit to um, the kind of alienation that we might feel within our own work as well. Yes, I mean, Grover makes the point that uh, that um, uh, sort of a sort of a 200, 250 year old philosophy that work is a kind of moral value in itself. And anyone who doesn't want to submit themselves to some kind of intense work discipline for most of their waking hours doesn't deserve anything. So, um, so this is a means of, uh, getting people, uh, to submit themselves to the system, even if, uh, the work they do is, um, is essentially, uh, empty and, uh, and, and futile. But I, I mean, I, I'm less convinced by the thesis than, than, than Grave. I, I don't think he actually um, satisfactorily proves he doesn't interrogate it with sufficient rigour. He might have been better off if he talked about bullshit work rather than bullshit jobs because even in the most meaningful employment um, there is a lot of sort of workplace bullshit. So 
sort of uh, ritual and and practice that seems to be completely unproductive, uh, that just simply goes to keeping the oils of the uh, keeping the wheels of the uh, of the corporation oiled. Um, it would be interesting if you if you sat down and and looked at, at every job to see how much of it is involved in even the most important job uh, involves actual kind of physical output uh, productive capacity and how much of it is to do with the sort of the maintenance of the uh, of the of the progress of the organisation. Yeah, Gideon, it's Jackson here. Yeah, I think I, I remember reading the initial essay five years ago. Mm-hmm. I haven't read the extended version, but one of the things that struck me about it is is a bit what you're saying that we, you know, we're not encouraged to work to outcomes and work w- mm-hmm. the work that yeah. is there, but instead, yeah, we're working to yeah the the ritual of the nine to five, or perhaps even more with the very long overtime that many white collar workers mm-hmm. here in Australia work now as well. But I was interested in your response to his his research that he attempts to back up his intuition with, mm. where he, he does a survey uh, that finds that over 35%, I think, of people do not uh, or cannot say that their job has any is adding any value to society. And to me, uh, and you said you were surprised that more people didn't, didn't say that. Uh, I just yeah. thought that... <laughs> I, mean, I, was, I was surprised that two-thirds of people thought that they did. Um, you know, God knows. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how much I add to society, but it doesn't prevent me wanting to go to work in the mornings. I didn't think that um, he he looked at um, uh, I think he said 124 online discussions and 250 personal communications collected via Twitter. With the best will in the world, I didn't find that to be particularly rigorous mm-hmm. social science. Uh, Partly because you know such a sample would probably be self-selecting. The people who are most likely to uh, to talk about this phenomenon are those who are most inclined to in, to endorse it. Mm. But do you? Um, how does it sit that I feel like as a society, and and you mentioned it before, we still have this this moral drive to work. You know, we talk about work yeah. being uh, the uh, antidote to mental illness at times. Yeah. We talk about, yeah. you know, which, which I, I agree with in some sense. But mm. when the work, when you, when you can't even see a connection, and, and perhaps it mm. is self-selecting, but when people can't see a connection between their work and the society that they are a part of, mm. isn't that concerning? Uh, I mean, mm. Keynes, Keynes had the idea that technology would eventually release us from work and we could spend time on on the arts and you know on, on other things i, I just uh, i I'm wonder sure what would what would we do of course jackson what would we do if it wasn't work there, there, i mean there, there is a kind of an existential void there mm. that uh, that work kind of fills which i guess maybe previously was filled filled, filled by spiritual life but we're mm-hmm. very much a secular society now uh, we look for meetings in uh, in other areas, and work is is always there for us, even if uh, because it, it doesn't actually have any sort of physical outcomes anymore. Many of us are involved in work that involves quite abstract ends, and involves tools that are you know that you know are, are activated by a kind of a scuffle of keystrokes. We don't end up with a widget at the end of the day. That leaves us with a kind of a lingering sense of, uh, of of dissatisfaction. You know, what have we been able to achieve at the end of the day? And if we cease to do that work, wouldn't the world simply go on without us? 
One of the things I was thinking about is, you know, during the global financial crisis, it was a lot of these kind of middle management jobs that were, you know, first taken away. And, you know, I guess we've seen a lot of times since then. And I think that, um, you know, Jackson touched on automation and, you know, mm. what, what that might mean for a changing kind of job economy and job losses or, you know, at the very least different jobs. Mm. Do you think, do these things kind of speak to the disposability of, these type of middle management roles when they seem to be the first ones to be restructured? Interesting, yes, it's a good point. I mean, to be, to be fair, I mean, the, the, the jobs that have, have disappeared most, uh, most totally have been manufacturing jobs. Uh, they, were at the, they were in the first generation of kind of job losses to do with, uh, to, to do with the reform of the economy. In a lot of ways, they died unmourned. Uh, a lot of people still had this rather... Dickensian view of what working in a factory was like, and uh, and everyone thought, you know, what a great step forward, the fact that people no longer have to do these jobs. Uh, one of the paradoxes of this came home to me a few years ago when I when I went over to um, Elizabeth in the mm-hmm. last days of the of the car industry, uh, and at the time, um, you know, there was a sort of a more or less a sort of a bipartisan support for the dissolution of the uh, of, of the car industry it was perceived to be a a, a kind of a, a burden on the public purse uh the right despised it for um for you know requiring kind of automotive subsidies or requiring some kind of level of government assistance the left didn't like it very much either because you know they've always had a bit of a problem with the internal combustion engine uh and but the workers that I spoke to at the um, at the Holden plant there must have been some of the most stimulated and fulfilled and excited and engaged workers I've ever met. Would, they could were that have... fascinated by work by making cars. They the, the process was so complicated. It was it required such levels of of continuous improvement, of constant challenge, of working with materials, and then at the end of it had the satisfaction of seeing a car roll off the end of the assembly line. But I thought, why are we letting this kind of work just disappear with, without a fight? Uh, this is work that has enormous satisfactions, the satisfactions that come with making something. And yet, um, I don't recall a peep on either side of politics that defended the car industry, that defended anything to do with the quality of work, uh, as distinct from the quantity. Well, I think one of the things, you know, while we see... I guess partly due to environmental concerns, some of the changing nature of manufacturing. What we haven't seen is a reskilling of those workers to be put into equally um, fulfilling jobs for themselves, but you know perhaps. Well, those certain... jobs don't exist. Frankly. Yeah, that's true. Those jobs well, don't exist. We're not creating permanent jobs. We're creating part-time jobs. A lot of those people have ended up at labour hire companies yeah. on short-term contracts, not knowing um, you know what work they're going to be doing until the phone rings in the morning. Yeah. Uh, you know that, and with with enormous social cost uh, along the way. Well, we see yeah. the same thing for a lot of people in PR as well. It's that the companies have moved them on, but yet when when they want to make a decision, when they need to let go of some people, they just bring in someone from a PR firm. So they actually mm. have even less kind of um, you know to do with the actual workplace, but they come in to make those decisions to mm. have those conversations that other people don't want to have, I guess. Yeah, and they perform those roles mechanically to the extent that they might conceivably down the track be replaced by machines. Yeah. That will be the next um, step along the, um, on the, along the line of the evolution of work, which will be the mechanisation of white-collar work. 
uh, I think it's already happening, sort of at low levels of, uh, of, of the law. It's even happening in journalism, where robots are being mm. uh, trained to produce kind of made-to-measure uh, copy for um, for local newspapers and uh, and, and magazines. Uh, in the theory, uh, the sky's the limit in terms of what robots can do. Uh, we always thought that you know, kind of ostensibly creative work um, uh, would be immune from the uh, from the forces of uh, of, of mechanisation, but I, I don't think we can confidently say that's the case anymore. Gideon, you touched on the fact that neither side of uh, government was willing to stump up the uh, loathed subsidies to save the, the, car, the yeah. automotive manufacturing industry. We've seen a bit of a shift recently from the current government around uh, investment, for example, in coal or in other forms of power, and also the massive investment into military manufacturing that Pine Indeed, and others... Yes. What, yes. what are your thoughts on that? I mean, on one, I, I find it confusing because on one hand, yes, it may lead to some ongoing uh, <laughs> employment that has something that you build at the end of it, as you were lauding. Yes. But on yes. the other side, we are adding to, you know, a state of constant warfare. Yes, no, um, very confusing indeed. Uh, I guess, yeah, there's a, there's a sort of a streak of the macho about that, isn't there? You know, we can all kind of believe in defence issues. They've got a kind of a natural um, significance, uh, but really they are substitutes for um, for the manufacturing industry that we have so successfully gutted. Mm. Uh, well, Gideon, couldn't have you on without asking um, at least one cricket question. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to. I guess you know. Jackson and I are also um, big AFL fans, and I think you know we see in the AFL that you have specialist coaches for almost every aspect of the game, and mm. the players speak with such high regard, not just for their senior coach, but um, you know for their trainers, for the um, mm. you know the kicking coach. Hawthorne famously have had a coach for many years who just specialises in in kicking. Why is cricket, particularly Cricket Australia, so reluctant to embrace any kind of structure like this? It seems any time you know, batting coaches bought in or anything, they're, they're kind of laughed at from, you know, a lot of the players and it, they, you know, don't seem to embrace what seems to be professionalism of other coats. Interesting question. Um, I think there's perhaps more of that than, you, um, than you're perhaps immediately aware of. The coaches in cricket are much less visible than the, uh, than the ones at, uh, at, at, at AFL level. Mm. Uh, one of the things about um, about cricket is that uh, there are lots of kind of secondary skills. You know, everyone has to do kind of everything. You know, the the, the bowler, no matter whether he's the, you know, the worst batsman at the side, has to bat. Uh, everyone has to field. Um, cricket coaching is kind of, uh, in essence, more general rather than uh, rather than specific. Because the, because the game, because, just because of the nature of the game, but you're right in terms of um, I think quite a lot of uh, cricket being sort of passed on in a very sort of intuitive and even kind of superstitious fashion. There's a lot of folklore around cricket. Mm. There's a lot of um, uh, oral tradition. Uh, we still look upon the cricketer as a kind of a um, uh, as an individual rather than sort of a kicking mechanism. Um, a lot of it goes to uh, the teaching of players how to handle pressure, 
how to handle um, crunch points in uh, in in games, um, how to make the choice about what skill you apply at any particular time. You know, do I bowl my slow ball here? Do I bowl my bouncer? Um, uh, what what areas of the field do I try to access? A lot a lot more of cricket is to do with kind of one to one combat, as it were, rather than necessarily uh, the interactions of, of of eighteen men on a um, on a on a on a sporting field, as as is the case with with football. So I think the two areas of coaching are, are kind of um, are quite distinct. But I mean, there's there's an increasingly interesting overlap between cricket and football in the sense of the development of a club culture. Uh, the Big Bash League is uh, is kind of a version of a, a sort of a summer AFL mm. where you're encouraged to you know put your face paint on and and support your your club and uh, and identify with its colours and uh, and and take an interest in its in its fortunes. Mm. Uh, that's subtly different from the way in which we have previously supported cricket. And cricket has uh, cricket fans tend to be a bit more ecumenical. They, uh, they, they kind of like the game as distinct from, from any particular team. And one of the virtues of, uh, of cricket, I've always felt, is that proper cricket fans can see the merit in cricket performances no matter who performs them, whether they're on your side or not. Mm. Uh, this idea of a kind of a, um, of a sporting tribalism imported from football, uh, to me, seems a, a more dramatic departure than perhaps sometimes we realise. And yet, I would agree with you, Gideon, and yet we are still in the aftermath, you could say, of a national crisis in, in response to cricket, some of the rhetoric that came from our public leaders. The um, ongoing national crisis, it's, uh, it's, it sort of seems almost to be a crisis a year. <laughs> well, I just, I just wonder what your take is on the connection between the uh, between individual Australians and their cricket team. I was really taken by some of the commentary mm. after Tampergate where people said this will affect us walking into international uh, policy meetings, into business meetings. That this, you know, this is about Australia's. Are we as good as as our word? And and I was wondering how things like offshore detention or you know assisting the U.S. in blockading Yemen would go in our in our international dialogues, rather than you know our our team that must win, you know, that must win for us to love them. You know, I think the Big Bash will have a great summer this one as people turn away from the, the summer without Steve Smith and without Dave Warner. It's interesting. What, what, okay. did, what did you think of the, uh, of the public response to, uh, to the ball tampering in South Africa? Well, the public response or the international response? Well, I guess... I mean, the, I, yeah. I, I think the, the public response was... The public response was... Um, reflected a kind of a lingering um, and emergent disaffection. I, I think there is a sense of, there has been a sense of disquiet in the public for some years about the way in which the Australian team kind of uh, deports itself on the field. Uh, there, is a, there is a kind of a, a distance that's opened up between the public and their, their cricketers. They, our public likes to feel a sense of proprietorship, ownership of this mm -hmm. cricket team. They want to feel good about them. And it's been a while since they, uh, since they have. Uh, you know, it's interesting that we, you know, we beat England uh, last summer. Now, mm -hmm. that usually has been a cause of immense satisfaction to, to Australians, but I didn't really detect it. Uh, I didn't think that we, we 
got much pleasure out of it at all. We turned mm. up in, uh, in in great numbers, mm. but it wasn't a series that was particularly memorable. Uh, it didn't create any um, great stories. Didn't throw up any you know luminous new stars. Mm. It was a it was a good job done efficiently, but uh, but not very inspiringly. Uh, and then when Australian players were proved to have transgressed in in South Africa. There was a sense on social media, you read in the comment section underneath your pieces, that this for a lot of people was the last straw. You know, they were sick of cricket, they were sick of cricketers, they were all overpaid prima donnas. Uh, and this, this particular incident gave people an outlet, gave people a, a, an opportunity to express their indignation. Mm. So it wasn't just simply the, um, what took place in South Africa, it was, uh, it was that, that it was at the end of a of a of a, um, of a continuum of uh, of, of behaviours and, uh, and and attitudes. Internationally, I think we've um, we're not popular. Now we and we haven't been popular again for for some time. We're felt to be a bit preachy. We're felt to be a bit um, a bit pompous. Uh, that we kind of tell everyone else how what's the right way to play the game. Uh, we are a bit abrasive. And and I, uh, the cricket world kind of uh, is used to that. The cricket world is kind of just says, well, that's Australia. Um, I was talking to an international coach the, um, the the other night, and he was saying, you know, the Australians are foolish because they think that the way in which they behave on the on the field is an advantage to them and makes them unpleasant to play against. But everyone else is used to it now. It's not really an advantage at all. It's just the Australians carrying on uh, and, you know, trying to create this kind of cult-like atmosphere around their team. But the fact is we all know that they're just not very good. They're certainly not as good as they used to be. Mm. So they talk a good game, but, uh, but, but can they walk it? Well, um, unfortunately, we're going to have to go let go now, um, Gideon, but it's been uh, great to have a chat with you, and thanks for indulging us with a bit of cricket chat at the end there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, much obliged. Thank you, Gideon. Cheers, boys. Bye. Bye. You're listening to 3CR's Breakfast Summer Series. For more details on what you've been hearing, you can visit 3cr.org.au forward slash breakfast. Chelsea Manning begins by explaining her thoughts on the government letting in the likes of Stephen Molyneux, Milo Yiannopoulos, Steve Bannon and Lauren Southern, but denying her a visa. She mentions that people who speak out against racism and other far-right opinions are often branded pejoratively as social justice warriors. She also touches on the dangers of concentrated power in government and institutions. Obviously, it's a, it's a very selective process. Um, the minister can make uh, political decisions, and obviously they seem to think that allowing uh, ex- you know, right-wing extremists to often... Uh, allude to genocide and ethnic cleansing as being a legitimate policy while also um, going after, you know, people for having uh, legitimate political views as as being, like, nearly leftists and SJWs and a a number of other, you know, monikers uh, that they use. Um, So I think that, you know, there's there's obviously a... There's there's an obvious political element to this, and I think that... um, you know, like that. That just a—it's it, just a further indication of the fact that you know, many many governments, whenever you you give a little bit of authority 
to an institution, uh, and this, this happens a lot in the United States with the, with the U.S. president, is that, oh, you know, over time, this tendency to assume benevolence on the part of, uh, of an institution or an office, um, neglects to keep in, you know, to keep, uh, neg- neglects to take into account the fact that, um, there, if, if you give too much power to an, to an executive branch or to any branch of government, uh, then eventually, inevitably, in fact, it will be abused. Here in Australia, we know all too well the power Dutton currently has over the lives of refugees and their children, with hundreds still locked in indefinite detention. The revelations over the past week of wealthy people's household servants avoiding this cruel, draconian treatment really turns the stomach. When Chelsea was asked if she thinks her own visa ban was an abuse of that power, she was quick to point out those that are truly suffering. It, it certainly is being abused, but I, 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 what concerns me more is the, you know, like not necessarily in my case, but uh, how it's abused across the board in, uh, in Australia in particular. And I, I've learned... Uh, you know, I, I was vaguely aware of, you know, the, the issues that are in, you know, that are ongoing regarding immigration and especially custody of folks uh, who are tr- attempting to enter the country. And, like, you know, the, the literal, uh, I, dare I say, you know, that, they're, that, that these, like, camps and whatnot are, uh, are concentration camps up north, you know. Uh, so I think that... Uh, and I certainly learned a whole lot about this in the, in the, in the last few days that I, I didn't necessarily know it as in-depth. Despite the Department of Home Affairs failing to provide a visa to Miss Manning, she was still able to appear in Melbourne on Friday and in Brisbane tonight via video link. This makes it clear to Chelsea that the decision to deny her a visa was a political one. Well, I've repeatedly criticised uh, the, the, immig- I mean, the Australian immigration policies um, in numerous public statements prior to uh, this, uh, this like political decision, so um, you know it should be unsurprising that you know there might be a, 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 a difference in how in the policy gets applied uh, based on those who are in who are in unquestioning support of the national security establishment of any country uh, versus, uh, say, my opinion. I asked Chelsea about Donald Trump raging against fake news similar to the political voices here in Australia claiming the ABC is biased and doesn't report the truth. The response from Google and Facebook to this criticism is to doctor their algorithms, somehow deciding what is true and what isn't, and inevitably, it seems, silencing the voices of criticism and dissent. What does Chelsea think about the global state of freedom of information, or freedom of ideas? I I think we're at a critical crossroads here, Um, and in particular, uh, it's... I have actually a personal connection with some of these, uh, with some of these, uh, Facebook page crackdowns in particular. Um, I was actually working, uh, I was working with a, a number of, uh, folks in a counter protest, uh, in, uh, in early August, uh, against, uh, Jason Kessler, uh, you know, and their attempt at, uh, putting together another Unite the Right Two, um, you know, on the, the one year anniversary of Charlottesville. And, uh, there was a Facebook page that was a legitimate Facebook page but with a legitimate protest with, like, numerous uh, thousands of thousands of people who had RSVP'd and were getting updates uh, daily about what, you know, about this action. And, uh, that, and that got caught, in, caught up into the, the, the Facebook deletions uh, that were, you know, reported in the media 
uh, not necessarily by Facebook itself, but were widely reported in the media to be Russian fake news. And it was quite, it was quite scary. It was actually quite frightening and, and disturbing to see, you know, like folks in the D.C. area be essentially called Russian stooges that, and Russian bots, you know, and uh, it became quite a joke among, uh, among my, you know, my friends uh, in which, you know, we, we just kind of like, you know, had to run around and explain to people, we're not Russian bots. But uh, but very but you know on a more serious note you know like it the this is the this is the danger of placing so much arbitrary power um, as to what you know as to what is and is not deemed fake and it seems that most of these uh, most of these assertions about you know fake news and and whatnot have have a real strong undercurrent of um, of authoritarian, you know, uh, attempts to uh, undermine uh, the, the the public, you know, the the, the public debate, because um, if if you're if you're able to essentially call every person that you disagree with uh, somebody who's putting out fake information, then uh, and and then you also put out fake information yourself, you're essentially uh, trying to undermine. Uh, everyone and, and exhaust people's ability to, to think critically. Um, so it's a real attempt to just exhaust people, I think. Um, and uh, and you know, so there's there's there, there's a lot of different things that are happening all at once here. But um, I think that it is that we need to we need to not think about this in terms of like who who is the arbiter of this, but think more along the lines of what kind of um, what kind of interest do the kinds of people who say these things and do these things, um, you know, whether making accusations or producing propaganda materials or to think that we need to keep our eyes out uh, more on who's doing it and why. The control of information and the rise of Trump are inexorably linked to the frightening rise of the far right at home and across the world. Not just in the West, but a creeping authoritarianism is on the march in Russia, in Southeast Asia, in East Asia and in the Middle East. This is what Chelsea thought we should do to fight the far right. Don't give them a platform, uh, and it's very. This is this is extremely important. Uh, you can't interview a, you can't interview a far right extremist um, on what they believe because they don't have they they don't have an actual ideology. What they have are propaganda statements. You know, you know they say crazy things and and. And y'all, like reporters, like to report on the crazy things that they say. But they're really dog whistles to say to 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 say to people who might, you know, secretly be having similar opinions. Hey, it's okay to say these things now. So you're really just becoming a a a, a microphone, a mouthpiece, uh, and you're really if you give them a platform and uh, the New Yorker. You know, festival in particular is is, is something that's relevant. Um, where the New Yorker festival was essentially going to be giving um, Steve Bannon a platform, uh, a legitimate platform to, to spread his ideas, um, which aren't really ideas; they're just they're just propaganda to you know the dog whistling and and also the the, the use of these platforms to, to gain I- legitimacy for some of these uh, you know. Uh, policies like Steve Bannon was the architect of the uh, Muslim ban, for instance. They, they only have power and relevance because y'all give it to them whenever you interview them in the first place. And I think that's the real danger here.
And, you know, I just want to reiterate again that they don't have, they don't, what, what they say doesn't matter. It's the intent that's behind it. You know, uh, it, they're, they're going to say crazy and outrageous things that, you know, uh, that, that, that you, you, that y'all like to report on. And, you know, they, they, they know that. They know that it's edgy. They know that it, you know, it's news, that, be, that it generates something that appears on the surface to be newsworthy. That's the strategy. And that's where the real danger is with journalists, is that you, you essentially become, if you don't recognize this and you don't realize this, then you can count, then you can essentially become, you know, a third party. You know, you can become complicit in that. I have to admit, I was a bit troubled overall by this position. The concept of no platforming is a complicated one for me, as is the assertion that Steve Bannon's power is derived solely from media attention and contains no actual ideology or beliefs. By denying any appeal of this right-wing fascist populism beyond racism and xenophobia, I felt Chelsea avoided looking at the material and economic realities, what I would describe as the catastrophic failure of neoliberalism and casino capitalism that are driving some people towards Trump, towards Brexit, towards fear and disharmony. Rising inequality needs to be addressed, and denying Bannon or others a platform doesn't seem to me to be addressing that issue. James asked the next question, and my disquiet deepened. Yeah, Chelsea, we would obviously lo- have loved to have had you in Australia, and but your freedom of movement has obviously been restricted. What do you think of the immediate prospects for Edward Snowden and Julian Assange to gain any of their freedom back? I have no idea. That I, I, I don't know the specifics of either case. Um, quite, you know, quite, quite frankly, I'm not qualified to answer that. Um, and uh, and the, specific, the specifics of other cases are, are really, uh, of any case, you know, and there's, there's all, also a no, there's a number of whistleblowers around the world who have very similar cir- circumstances that, you know, uh, I'm thinking of, uh, well, well, uh, uh, I can't remember his name, the Israeli. Um, anyway. There's a number of cases in which this has been happening over the last 30 years. It's not just uh, it's not just a couple of prominent um, cis, cis men. That Chelsea Manning, a former soldier and intelligence officer who was moved to become a whistleblower because she was horrified by the behaviour of an increasingly criminal Central Command, could not or did not want to comment on the fate of Edward Snowden was to me particularly shocking. Chelsea has never been a cis white man, true, but she is white, ostensibly middle class and a former intelligence officer, and a whistleblower. Assange to one side, she has a lot in common with Edward Snowden, and it frustrated me to hear her focus on their differences. Chelsea Manning models herself as a fighter for peace and a voice against the military-industrial complex. I would have thought she could find some allegiance with Snowden. In the next section of this interview, we asked Chelsea about her views on the rise in militarism in Australia and around the world. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. And you are back live on 3CR Monday Breakfast. And we've just been hearing uh, an excerpt from an interview that um, Jackson and I participated in with Chelsea Manning. And obviously, as part of that, um, as Jackson has kindly put together, it's got some, you know, filled in some gaps around some of the things that, um, yeah, I guess it was... um, it was quite an interesting experience, I think, for Jackson and I to be part of that was um, quite different to most other interviews that, that we would have been a part of. And so, yeah, I think that the interview kind of reflects that. And obviously it's a um, complex kind of situation in some ways, but, uh, yeah, we... Um, we did our best, and Jackson's done a great job in putting it all together. Oh, thanks, James. That's very kind. 
So um, I think we'll, we might just go straight into the second part of the interview and then um, if we have time we'll come back and, and have a little chat overall about some of our um, feelings about the interview. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast and this is the second section of a chat with Chelsea Manning. I asked Chelsea about what she interpreted by Scott Morrison's only comments when he was asked about her being denied a visa. PM Morrison said he was for bringing Australians together and keeping them safe. How did Chelsea feel by the implication of that statement, that she is a divisive, unsafe figure? Uh, it, it boils down to, you know, nice-sounding statements that, you know, are complete sentences. <laughs> I, uh, I don't think, you know, I... You know, you, you often hear these, like, very hollow phrases from, you know, uh, from people in power. Um, national security is one of them. Uh, dare, dare anyone actually try to define what national security actually is? I certainly know the legal definition in the United States, which is about as vague as you can get. It is anything of and relating to the national defense and foreign relations. That's incredibly broad. So, um, you know, I just we should all all be very skeptical and very critical of what people in authority say whenever they say things like, like this is important for you know national security or you know this is about uh, this is about creating jobs this is about um, you know in, in, you know ensuring the the protection of our culture and our heritage like these are very these are very loaded phrases that, that if you start to unpackage them, um, you, you start to – it can reveal far more than the statement itself if you actually try to, to do a, a more detailed analysis as to what, you know, to what each different word actually means in, in the context of the phrase. And, uh, and so I, I call it deconstructing. So I like to deconstruct the, the, the phrases of people in power. Analysing the words of the powerful is critical work for activists, but the suggestion that governments always employ bland, false and meaningless language I wasn't so sure about. It plays into a broader narrative we are constantly bombarded with, that you can't trust government to tell the truth or to run anything substantial. This neoliberal idea is crippling our democracy, and it makes people suspicious of other critical institutions, like unions for example, leaving big business to pick up the pieces of our social compact. As a whistleblower on war crimes, I was fascinated to hear what Chelsea had to say about the growth of the military-industrial complex, with Australia announcing it wants to be one of the world's ten biggest arms dealers, but can't adequately find funding for schools, clean energy, secure housing or jobs. What did Chelsea think of this frightening industry? Yeah, well, there's a lot of money to be made in this. Um, so I, 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 worked, I, I worked in defence previously, as you might have heard, um, and uh, I certainly wanted to, uh, I certainly wanted to take part of that for, uh, financial purposes in my own life at, at one point in my life. Um, you know, to, to, there's a lot of, it's a very lucrative, uh, field to get into, um, whether you're, uh, a, a, whether you're, uh, just an employee or if you're a business owner or if you're, um, or if you're anything that's, that, that's in support of the national security state. Um, there's a lot of money to be made and, uh, it, it should be unsurprising that, uh, in, in, you know, in, in societies that have privatized their military-industrial complex, like significant portions of it, that um, they are constantly wanting to expand and grow. 
Um, and one, one of the things that I often go around saying is, is I've never really encountered uh, any, um, any, any uh, country in the world that's had a major you know, uh, privatized national security apparatus where politicians and, and people in power uh, and, you know, business leaders and, and, and all these, like, institutional powers uh, say, actually, we need less. We don't need more, like, because they're always asking for more. The United States is a good example of this. Um, we, have, uh, we have the largest military, we have the largest and most expensive military in the world, $700 billion a year now, uh, up from, like, 550 only a few years ago. Um, we have the largest prison population in the world. Uh, we have the, uh, I mean, we, we have the, 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 the most vast intelligence collection platforms uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and analysis systems in the entire world uh, that are enormously expensive. And, uh, and, uh, and yeah, like, we, we just, you never hear that, oh, we, actually, we, we've got enough now. You know, we're done. You know, we, we've got enough to, 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 to sustain this. It's always more. And, uh, and the reality is uh, there's a second part to that, I guess, you know, from my perspective, which is that we should be pushing more for, you know, less. And uh, the time for reforms in this area was like 40 years ago, you know, like, yeah. because it was sustainable at one point, and now it's not sustainable. So we really need to we really need to push back and start to, to, to dismantle some of these institutions in, uh, uh, in full, in part, you know, and maybe start from, start from scratch. Australia has a joint U.S. military base, Pine Gap, sitting outside Alice Springs. What do you think about Australia having foreign bases on its own soil and, I guess, being so tied to U.S. foreign policy? I knew I was going to get an Alice Springs question eventually. <laughs> I mean, uh, do, do, do y'all want it there? I mean, that's, a, I guess, the biggest question is, like, does, do, do folks want it there? And uh, I'm going to guess that the folks in Alice, like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know how the folks in Alice, in Alice Springs feel. I've certainly never heard their opinions on, on this before. I, 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 I often hear it's, it's critical infrastructure. You know, it's, a, it's, it's an international, you know, uh, it, 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 it's an international, you know, require or, or um, the international community needs it uh, because it, you know, it covers such a, it covers a, 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 a large, you know, space of, uh, of the, uh, of the, the geographic region that, you know, isn't covered otherwise. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Like, uh, I, I can't really say a whole lot without getting into, more sensitive matters that I can't talk about. I'm sorry. <clears throat> James's question there goes to the heart of whether we want our government to continue to be complicit in US foreign policy, policy that has seen countless deaths and wholesale destruction of communities in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Central and South America, East Asia, and elsewhere, from the end of World War II to this day. That Chelsea Manning did not wholeheartedly denounce US foreign policy and in fact suggested the listening post that Pine Gap was critical infrastructure before saying she couldn't speak any more, perhaps speaks of the agreement she signed to secure Obama's pardon. I'm only speculating, but her refusal to speak about Pine Gap shows to me just how potent the military-industrial complex remains, here and abroad. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, and that was our chat with Chelsea Manning. You are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Right now we've got... 
Clinton Fernandez, who's the author of a new book called Island Off the Coast of Asia. And Clinton is a former Australian Army officer, served in the Australian Intelligence Corps, and today uh, he's a professor of international political studies at the University of New South Wales. And his book is a really um, you know, deep dive into the instruments of statecraft in Australian foreign policy. It goes right back to colonial history and, you know, up until today and what Australia is doing with, um, you know, foreign policy and the, um, you know, militarism in Australia. Thanks a lot uh, for joining us, Clinton. Oh, thank you for having me. So I guess to, to start with, um, you know, how does a former Australian Army officer come to be writing this book, which is, um, you know, a really... Um, big kind of in-depth account of Australian foreign policy? Oh, I guess everybody's had a variety of jobs in their past. And uh, uh, I've just uh, been in the military uh, for about 15 years. Uh, but that was about you know, 13 years ago. And I've been an academic um, since 2006. Um, the background simply gave me a, a better insight into how uh, policy works on the inside. But the evidence for all this is simply... Uh, declassified material from the National Archives, as well as uh, you know, what's publicly available by, by examining um, corporate uh, reports and corporate influences on foreign policy. And so in the book, you talk about the ANZUS agreement and mm-hmm. it, the kind of the role it's played in conflict. What do you see as the current kind of diplomatic or military benefits of the ANZUS agreement? Uh, well, I mean, the military benefits... Uh, are less than uh, what people often assume. Mm. Uh, ANZUS doesn't actually uh, compel um, uh, the United States uh, to come to Australia's defence in the event of, uh, of an invasion, which uh, in any case is very unlikely. Um, rather, it just compels, it just requires both sides to just consult with each other uh, in, you know, in accordance and to act in accordance with each other's constitutional processes. Uh, so it's not a guarantee of our military security or military defence at all. Um, what it does do, though, is uh, uh, provide some kind of psychological reassurance uh, that maybe uh, we matter uh, to a superpower like the United States. I, I was um, reading uh, a few weeks ago the paper, the ANZUS After 50 Years paper, and that um, you know looked at I guess the benefits and um, you know negative impacts of of the um, of the alliance, and it's something that is kind of never really touched on in uh, mainstream media. Really, it's like as you said, it's really given shorthand for the Americans will come and save us or whatever. Yes. Um, but I think it seemed, you know, I think the Australian government itself has a much more kind of nuanced approach to that. And really, in a lot of ways, do you think that it is a kind of um, a marketing exercise in a way? Uh, look, it provides reassurance uh, uh, to policymakers that, uh, you know, we can consult with the United States uh, in accordance with uh, various uh, meetings that we have as part of uh, ANZUS. Um, and that psychological reassurance is something that policymakers seem to uh, really treasure. Uh, but in terms of uh, actual influence, uh, that, that ANZUS doesn't give you that. Uh, nothing really does. Um, see, in the past... The, the, the reason for the ANZUS is, is part of a very deep geopolitical tradition. Uh, we were part of um, the greatest empire in the world, uh, the British Empire, and that's how Australia was founded. And we've been on the winning side of uh, a global confrontation uh, between uh, Europe and the rest of the world, between, say, the imperial powers and the colonized people. And what I call the organizing principle of our entire foreign policy is to stay on that winning side. Um, and so we will participate in uh, um, all kinds of uh, uh, 
expeditionary wars or things like that uh, in order to remain relevant to British thinking. And the great anxiety during the British period was that uh, London wouldn't care too much about what happened down here. Um, and so that used to be called colonial nationalism you know, or empire nationalism. It was loyalty to the empire while trying to advocate uh, for uh, Australia's interests um, or visibility. And today it could be called alliance nationalism, so loyalty to uh, the U.S. alliance while trying to get a seat at the table. And in that case, uh, I think, uh, in that sense, uh, it's been entirely unsuccessful. You know, the, the United States simply doesn't care that much about what Australia says or does, except when they want us to come along and give them diplomatic support uh, elsewhere in the United Nations system. Well, I, I guess, you know, in 2008, we saw President Obama make his um, so-called pivot to Asia speech. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from there, you know, I guess it looked perhaps for, you know, some interested people that Australia was going to play more of a role in that kind of sense. And the ongoing battle, I guess, now between America and Chinese kind of influence. Uh, yes. How do you see, I mean, um, you know, Hugh White has kind of talked of this kind of dual, um, you know, power sharing kind of arrangement that could happen there or, um, you know, certainly don't want to create a um, Chinese scare kind of thing here. But, you know, it, it is a rise of, an, of another military power. And I guess, you know, what Australia's um, role will look like in that, I think, is a really interesting kind of... Oh, for sure. I mean, look, the the, the fact is that uh, uh, China's rise is something that uh, causes a a major dilemma for people who are who are trying to formulate foreign policy. Uh, For this reason, you know, from the uh, let's say approximately the 18th of Jan, 1788, when the first fleet arrived, until say the 15th of September 2008, the fall of uh, Lehman Brothers, global financial crisis, uh, there was no conflict, in fact, uh, at all between our military partner and our economic partner. It was one and the same, you know, and even when it wasn't one and the same like Japan, it was still an ally after the Second World War. Uh, but now, the last decade, uh, China is our greatest trading partner. But the United States, uh, uh, the, the entire architecture of Australia's defense arrangements is with the United States. Um, and what has not uh, been contemplated, this is one of the, the key things in that particular chapter of the book you're referring to, um, is the social fracture that could occur in the event of a, of a war with China uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, China is not going to take a step back. Uh, they have already achieved uh, military uh, dominance in that part of the air, in that part of the region. Uh, anything short of a full of a full-scale war with the United States, China would win. Anything short of that, um, and so Australian ships, if they confront China through uh, you know miscalculation in some way, um, they could uh, could have a serious setback. Now, the people who make policy. Uh, look a lot like the people you find on commercial TV, uh, namely they're largely non-multiracial, uh, but our society has become multiracial. If you look at uh, the number of people of Chinese background, for example, who happen to be in hospitals, schools, uh, universities, workplaces more generally, uh, there's quite a lot. Um, and uh, th- there's going to be calls from the extreme fringes for people like that to be put in internment camps if there's a steady stream of body bags that comes back uh, in the event of a, of a war uh, in the South China Sea with China. Uh, I don't think that level of social fracture has been contemplated by people who make policy. You see, they, they, uh, they reflect certain uh, intrinsic uh, uh, values, which is that the entire architecture is to do whatever the United States would like us to do, within reason, of course, but to, but to, but to go along with the United States. And uh, meanwhile, uh, any kind of uh, conflict with China would shut down maritime trade in the Western Pacific, okay, and that would see a serious fall in Australia's gross domestic product. Uh, it would see 
uh, a flow-on effect to the economies of South Korea and Japan, uh, where we have huge uh, you know, trading interests. Uh, and so while the defense architecture uh, remains very pro-U.S., uh, something that's been stitched up since 1951, um, the economic architecture, and indeed our demographic uh, nature now, uh, has changed. And I don't think uh, people in, in, who make policy have appreciated that fact. We heard about the Witness K scandal uh, in which foreign office um, was bugged. How prevalent do you think this kind of espionage is and do you think it undermines Australia's diplomatic negotiations with other nations? Uh, well, I think what the Witness K scandal does is it's shown that um, you know, we've chosen the former foreign minister Alexander Downer is alleged to have ordered uh, uh, an espionage operation uh, to, to bug uh, the, the negotiating rooms uh, of the East Timorese government mm-hmm. uh, during uh, oil and gas treaty negotiations in 2004. Um, and that can't be considered a friendly act okay, by anyone. Um, I think a number of Pacific Island countries watching this, the people in the countries in the Southwest Pacific, uh, are going to have uh, grave doubts about uh, our good intentions at precisely the time that we seem to want to reassure them um, that you know they should be leaning towards us and not towards China. When in there's a chapter where you talk about um, the Vietnam War, and I yes. guess um, you know I think, like you argue in in the in the book, it really has um, had a huge impact on I think not just Australian militarism, but you know I guess the, the kind of boots on the ground type militarism. We've seen a big shift into um, you know drone warfare and things like that since then, and I guess since yes. Iraq and Afghanistan. But yes. in there you talk that. Um, the Vietnam years also saw the public abandon the view that only the government should decide matters of war and peace. Yes, yes. look, it's not entirely, uh, not very well understood today. People today think of Vietnam and they think of, uh, you know, peace protests and how people were all against the Vietnam War, but that's not true. I mean, one of the things that I do trace in the book is that public opinion was pro-war. Mm. Okay? Uh, it was pro-war uh, uh, and, in fact, it was even pro-conscription. Um, the 1966 November elections, uh, the Labour Party at the time, uh, the leader was Arthur Caldwell, and he was totally opposed uh, to sending uh, Australian troops, and in, in, in particular conscripts, to Vietnam. And he said, effectively, that uh, the 66 elections are going to be a referendum on, on the Vietnam War. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, and in fact, he was soundly defeated. Uh, he, you know, the Labour Party lost that election uh, by more uh, than they'd ever lost to Menzies. Uh, you know, Harold Holt won uh, by a landslide. Um, and so uh, what, has, what is not appreciated is how pro-war the population was. But I think what happened was that the, uh, the peace movement had a civilizing effect um, on, on our culture. And within the peace movement, uh, you had activists who were women who didn't want to take subordinate roles to, to men uh, activists. And so they themselves began to push back against sexism within the peace movement. And uh, through that and a number of other processes, uh, uh, you know, the, the feminist movement came out, followed by the environmental movement. Uh, and all of those things, I think, had a civilizing effect on, um, on Australian culture and, and society. And to the point where after Vietnam, uh, the public was no longer willing to tolerate expeditionary wars. You know, when, for example, um, Howard has to send troops into into Iraq, 
um, he's got to scare the public to do it. He's got to lie and say, or at least mislead and say, look, uh, you know, the Saddam Hussein, weapons of mass destruction, links with Osama bin Laden, because the population isn't going along with it. The population has been civilized. They're not willing to tolerate, you know, uh, aggressive wars anymore. And so the fact that uh, the population has to be deeply misled and scared by all these kinds of, uh, you know, scary figures to, to get them to go along with the war, and it still fails, uh, that is actually a, a, a positive sign of the peace movement, that in fact they've managed to, uh, to, to have a civilizing effect on, on our society. Clinton, it's Jackson here. Um, yes. you, you've written uh, in the past about uh, parliamentary approval processes of military yes. deployments. What do you think is the right way for a government to get the consent of its people to engage in a military conflict? Yeah, um, I, I wrote, wrote about this because there are, there, there are groups like the Australians for War Powers Reform. I'm not a member, but I, I'm aware of their work. Uh, and they call for parliamentary approval before sending out, uh, sending troops into, into conflict. Um, and, and I wanted to kind of add to the debate by showing if you needed to do that, here's what you'd have to do to make it happen. Uh, I think that there, are, there are three objections that have always been put up uh, to people who say that Parliament should have to, uh, to approve a military deployment. The first one is um, intelligence. What about, uh, you know, if you discuss the, the intelligence threat, the dispositions of the enemy in Parliament, then the entire public's going to hear about it, but so is the enemy. And therefore, you don't want to, to, to reveal classified intelligence in Parliament. So that's one objection. The other objection is, uh, you know, flexibility. So supposing you've got ships heading off to, uh, uh, to the Middle East or somewhere else, uh, and then they're suddenly called to fight Somali pirates. Uh, how are you going to call Parliament back in order to, to make them debate that? There isn't enough time. And the third is self-defense. Supposing a, a foreign power would seize a part of Australia or even an offshore island, like, say, Christmas Island or Cocos Island, uh, if you call Parliament back, uh, you're giving too much time to the other side to consolidate its gains and set up defenses. And so that increases, uh, you know, the casualties on your side. And so what I've said is that um, if you wanted to make it happen, you'd have to have uh, a few reforms first. You'd have to um, – these are very simple to do, but they need to happen. You would need to empower – uh, the uh, certain committees of parliament uh, to hear classified intelligence and uh, to see the same intelligence uh, as the executive branch that's the cabinet is seeing and that is what happens in the united states for example you know the senate intelligence committee in the u.s and the arms and the, and the house intelligence committee uh, they see the same intelligence as the united states president um, and for certain operations like drone operations that are conducted, you know, those senators and their staffers are driven across the Potomac River to the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and they are shown footage of drone strikes. Nothing like this happens in the Australian Parliament. We've got the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, uh, which cannot examine any operation, any intelligence operation, past, present, or proposed. Okay, it is the most absurdly self-limiting uh, parliamentary committee you can think of. Um, and so if you wanted to have parliamentary authorization of military deployments, you would need to empower that committee uh, to, to see the intelligence. Uh, otherwise, it just wouldn't, couldn't be done. Secondly, if it is an actual um, self-defense de self type deployment, if we've been attacked or, say, an offshore territory has been seized, uh, then you wouldn't want to have any parliamentary approval. You'd simply uh, uh, you know, allow the military to be used in self-defense uh, by the executive acting as it should. 
Uh, and that is what happens. In countries that do have parliamentary approval, like Germany and the Netherlands and, and Norway, uh, there is no requirement for parliamentary approval uh, in matters of self-defense. Mm. But in coalition operations, these are all members of NATO, uh, and they do have like, you know, military operations as part of NATO, they don't allow their military to go anywhere unless the parliament has approved. And the United States uh, grumbles and sulks and gets annoyed uh, when the, the Netherlands says, no, we're taking our time making a decision. The parliament has to approve it. Uh, well, they say we're still going to have to do it. Whereas in Australia, there is no such requirement. So if you wanted to have those, uh, if you wanted to have those kinds of uh, processes with Parliament approving uh, military deployment, uh, you'd need to have these reforms first. Yeah, I would definitely want those types of requirements. I understand the difference between a self-defence act and an act uh, in foreign soil, or what you're calling a, a coalition-type act. Yeah. But it, you know, we have seen in recent history that the US is very willing to act unilaterally, uh, regardless yes. of support from its allies. Yes. There was an interesting article just a few days ago by Catherine McGregor in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, it was uh, titled, We Are Sleepwalking Into an Era of Unprecedented unprecedented danger and I was interested on your thoughts I mean obviously you know part of your job is to catastrophize and think about worst case scenarios but we do seem to be witnessing the, the death of the so-called Pax Americana Pax yes. for some and, and not not for others mm -hmm. certainly uh, what 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 do you see in the next few years as as China continues to produce films that demonstrate its ability to enter other countries. They're starting to make this type of material and become much more uh, active. This, uh, this, this writer, Catherine McGregor, also talks about the growth of Indonesia. I know that, uh, you know, who's our closest neighbour and some of our, uh, I guess, uh, quite arrogant interactions with that country and the way that we call them out for human rights abuses without looking into our own backyard or even our own history and our interactions with them. What are your thoughts about the near future and, and global okay. peace? Uh, look, I haven't read the article by, by Catherine McGregor, but I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Uh, as uh, I just take up your, your second point first, about uh, not looking into uh, what we do, about pointing out what, the, what other people do, I think that's uh, a universal as far as uh, governments are concerned and as far as uh, intellectuals who kind of uh, uh, go along with government policy are concerned. Okay, the idea is to do the opposite uh, of uh, the advice given in the Gospels. You know about uh, pulling out the uh, the plank from your eye and uh, and focusing on, uh, on on the on the bite and mote in somebody else's eye. Uh, no, what what you do is you you, figure, you 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 use human rights as a weapon. Uh, human rights has been weaponized in the United Nations uh, system such that uh, what we do in the Human Rights Council is point out uh, the flaws of Syria, but not Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. uh, North, North Korea, but not even what Indonesia did in East Timor with our help. Um, the, mm -hmm. the, whole, the whole object of, of uh, diplomacy when it comes to, to what states do and as to what think tanks that, that are allied with the states do is to focus on, uh, on, every, on your enemy's problems um, and not your own and to protect your allies. Um, so that's the first, that, that's standard. Um, yeah, okay, but in terms of the facts Americana fading, uh, I could just offer this observation. Um, any power uh, that aspires to great power status, uh, you know, universalism, has to have not just military force, but some kind of a, uh, a soft power universalizing ideology uh, that, that appeals to, uh, to uh, the rest. Uh, take, for example, Spain. You know, Spain was a brutal, you know, genocidal power in the Americas. Uh, but it had this universalizing ideology of Catholicism. Okay, same as Portugal. 
Um, you have, um, uh, you know, even before that, you've got Islam, uh, which was an aggressive kind of expansionist religion at the time. It was expanding. Uh, but it had certain uh, positive aspects to it. For example, it was against the caste system in India. Okay, It, it was against, uh, um, you know, usury, uh, the exorbitant charging of interest by, by, by moneylenders. Um, and so it had this positive uh, appeal as well. Uh, same with, um, say, the British Empire. You know, it had uh, uh, the idea of uh, liberalism and, and the Enlightenment. Um, it virtually invented modern athletics, you know, with uh, cricket and, and soccer, and hockey and other kinds of sports. Not to mention the railroads and the telegraph. Well, yes, yeah, so, yeah, sure. I mean, but, but, you know, it had this ideology that was offering certain things, certain values. Uh, France had its own kind of idea of the rights of man, you know, which was uh, manipulated for, uh, to expand its, its interests into, uh, into, into Africa. Uh, the United States has uh, soft power of democracy in Hollywood and, you know, things like that culture. Okay, in that sense, China is not that kind of power. Okay, it doesn't have 26 letters of the alphabet. It's got 7,000 characters. Okay, um, it, it is not easily able uh, to transfer uh, what, what is unique about Chinese uh, culture and civilization uh, to the rest of the world. It doesn't have that kind of uh, Pax Seneca, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the soft power aspects of it. Uh, China, to, the, to a large extent, though, is uh, a, um, a, a third world country. It's, uh, you know, gross domestic product uh, you know, per person, you know, is, is much, much lower than the United States. It's largely an assembly area in which uh, finance uh, from Taiwan and Japan, uh, you know, gets uh, products to assemble at low cost in China, and it's trying to move up the scale on that. Uh, its interactions with ASEAN are very different to Europe's interactions with ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Okay. China's interactions with ASEAN are, are quite uh, uh, horizontal. There's a lot of technology transfer. There's a lot of uh, interaction as, as almost as equals because they're both kind of, you know, third world former colonial powers. Europe's interactions with, say, uh, ASEAN are quite, uh, you know, colonial in that sense. There's kind of capital that's there um, and there's low wages being used. Um, and those, those agreements are quite different. I think China, uh, its, true, um, its true threat, as it were, is that it doesn't get scared. You know, it, it, uh, other countries, if the United States sort of waves a finger at them or points a stick, uh, it goes and uh, the other, other countries kind of uh, do what it wants, but China just defies it. I mean, that, that's, the real, that's the real fear of it. But I, I don't think it's got, um, it's, it, it aspires to universalism in the way that, say, Britain or France or, or the American empires or their hegemonic status do. I mean, it's, it doesn't have that soft power narrative, that universalizing ideology. You know, it's not trying to promote uh, Confucianism, nor, nor, nor could it in this country. Though, you know, the Belt Road program would suggest otherwise. You know, they, you know, I'm not sure yes. whether it's a totalizing ideology or a universally uh, universalizing ideology in the way you're describing. And I'm I'm no. thankful that they don't have those aspirations of uh, no. global domination. But they are interested in bringing their particular brand of, uh, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics or yeah. uh, yeah. to to the rest of the developing world. And that, yeah. and that is going to I feel like that's going to change the geopolitical reality yes. that, that that you have just so aptly described. It will look. You're right, but once again, it is it is a, it is kind of uh, uh, it sees itself uh, as uh, a leader of the third world. 
Uh, I mean, the, there was a, there's a group in the United Nations system called the G77, which came out of the 1960s, where 77 third world countries uh, joined together. Uh, in, in those days, I should add, third world had a positive aspect to it. Uh, it was like the third estate of the French Revolution. I mean, that's literally where the word, the phrase third world comes out of. Uh, it's neither the, the, the monarchs nor the aristocrats, uh, you know, the nobility. And so from the French Revolution, so third world had a kind of a positive uh, side to it. So the third world... Uh, uh, there were 77 countries in the third world, and uh, they wanted a better deal. They wanted a better deal, mm. uh, you know, to recover from the effects of colonialism. Mm. Uh, and that that grouping has now increased more than a hundred, uh, but they still call themselves the G77. Well, okay, in the UN, China leads or sees itself as leading the G77. It definitely wants to to bring together the, the former colonial powers. Um, uh, to unite their economies together. And it does so, of course, in a dominating fashion, you know, with uh, quite uh, aggressive behavior at times. But, you know, in, in things like climate change, for example, it does take the lead in the United Nations system, and it speaks on behalf of the third world, uh, on behalf of the G77. Mm. Um, and and the, the One Belt, One Road system uh, is part of that. I mean, it sees, it sees, sees itself as, as pushing westward um, into uh, the Eurasian uh, landmass uh, and then trying to use, that's the, the land aspect of the, of the One Belt, One Road system. And then there's a maritime aspect which sees it's going, um, you know, a, a string of uh, trading posts backed by military power, naval bases, um, uh, into the African continent and then into the, through the Red Sea uh, and the Mediterranean uh, down the track. Uh, so, it, but it is not a, 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 a universalizing kind of ideology as such. It's more a, an economic project, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is a, a, a project off the third world. I mean, that's its primary, its primary focus. And to the extent that we see ourselves as part of the European conquest of the third world, then yeah, we are at a disadvantage. Sure. But in terms of Australia, I just want to say, yes, look, the, the, the laws against foreign interference that have come in, uh, those are important laws. There is a large uh, diaspora. There is clear evidence that um, uh, you know, China would like to, uh, to, to meddle in elections. Um, and um, I think those laws... Um, are probably necessary, but I think there is great need for greater oversight of those laws. For the first time, you know, we've got, since the 1960s, subversion um, is now a focus of ASIO. Look, in the past, uh, ASIO would focus on subversives, as uh, people who were in the peace movement, you know, anti-Vietnam and so on, as if they were acting on behalf uh, of the communists uh, in the Soviet Union. Okay, so subversion became uh, something that, that ASIO would focus on. Now, Given that many people in the peace movement in Vietnam weren't at all connected to the Soviet Union, they were just basically opposed to violence in Vietnam, you know, Australian presence in Vietnam and the United States presence in Vietnam, um, it became clear that ASIO was uh, focusing on Australian society rather than on subversives. So subversion went out because it was was no longer a a focus for ASIO. It became interested more in politically motivated violence, uh, terrorism, um, and, of course, direct espionage, but not subversion. But now with these new laws, which I think are important and necessary, uh, you, you should have uh, laws to, to detect foreign interference in, in Australian society and our democracy. But now subversion has come back. Okay? And so the lack of oversight, parliamentary oversight, uh, is now a, a problem. We actually have no legitimate, genuine parliamentary oversight. Any oversight of ASIO occurs through the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, which is within the executive branch of government. We don't have legislative oversight, uh, and we don't have judicial oversight, and so that really now needs to happen. It certainly is a problem when you have um, internal departments monitoring other departments. Um, 
But unfortunately, Clinton, we've run out of time uh, this morning. We've been speaking to Clinton Fernandez, who is the author of a new book, Island Off the Coast of Asia. And I really appreciate um, your discussion this morning. It's been really, really great. And I'm sure listeners have really enjoyed it as well. So if they'd like to... Um, hear more about what you've got to say and there's a, a number of other things we didn't touch on um, things around the kind of lack of like, political debate and discussion within parliamentary circles and the global financial crisis and its impact on foreign policy uh, a number of other things that um, you talk about in the book so people should definitely um, check that out um, thanks a lot for joining us this morning thank, I appreciate your questions uh, you obviously prepared very well thank you so much great thanks. to talk to you uh, you've thanks. been listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Uh, Up next is Women on the Line. And that's all we've got time for this morning. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned to 3CR right over summer as we bring you some more important conversations we had during 2018.